at its most basic level, it has one job. And it does this one job over and over again. Day after day, year after year. And it weighs about one pound. And its one job is actually quite simple. Beat. Over and over again. And as long as it does that one job, we live. And I am, of course, talking about this little organ each of us has called the heart. Your heart beats about 100,000 times a day, or 36.5 million times a year. From the time this service started to the time it ends, your heart will pump about 70 gallons of blood through your body. And we all know that if the heart stops, blood does not circulate, oxygen isn't carried to our cells, and we die. And in some cases, the heart is so sick, the only solution to prevent death is to get a new one, to receive a heart transplant. And I looked into this a little bit this week. The first heart transplant on a human being was performed by Dr. James D. Hardy, who was actually born in the state of Alabama. In 1964, he performed the first heart transplant on a patient named Boyd Rush. Now, obviously, Hardy had nowhere near the technology we have today. There was no organ donor registry, and taking a heart from a living person wasn't exactly ethical. So what did Hardy do? He transplanted into Rush the next best thing he could get his hands on, the heart of a chimpanzee. The heart actually did temporarily beat within the patient, but unsurprisingly, he died about an hour later. Well, heart transplants have come a long way since then, and in the United States alone, there are nearly 4,000 successful transplants every single year. And similar to how the heart is key to your physical life, in Scripture, the heart is key to your spiritual life. Your heart impacts how you treat others, the choices you make, and perhaps most importantly, how you relate to God. So today we're going to look at what God says about our hearts in Jeremiah 17. And in the book of Jeremiah, we've seen that the nation of Judah is headed for tragedy, ruin. Last week we saw in Jeremiah 10, he exposed the folly of Judah's idolatry. And then from Jeremiah 10 to Jeremiah 17, we essentially have a catalog of Judah's rebellion. It details how Judah has broken the terms of the covenant and therefore placed themselves on a path that will end in exile. But the problem is not merely what they do. The problem is who they are. They have this deep ingrained issue. And because human nature has not changed, it's a problem we share with them today. A problem that is often ignored. A problem people often don't want to accept or deal with, but it is there. There's this fatal flaw that lied within the people of Judah, and it lies within you and within me. And if it is not dealt with, it will lead us to ruin. And that problem, the source of our sin, is our hearts. 
not the biological organ pumping in your chest right now. The heart in scripture is the center of your reason. It's the place from which our actions flow. It is the control center, or you could think of it as the operating system of the computer of your life. And in his word, from Genesis to Revelation, God has always been concerned with obedience that flows from the heart. He revealed this to Israel repeatedly in his law. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy 6 says, You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And that comes straight out of the Deuteronomy, and then it's also said again in Leviticus 19, verse 17. God said to his people, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. So later in Matthew 5, when our Lord picks up on the idea of don't look with lust in your heart or commit murder by hating in your heart, he's pulling on the thread that God has revealed to his people. He is concerned with our hearts. And this is a major theme and the book of Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 4. I just want to briefly trace the theme of the heart from Jeremiah 4 to where we're going to be today in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 4, look at verse 14. Jeremiah 4, verse 14. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? And then go to Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah 5, verse 23. Verse 23 says, But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone away. So what he says in Jeremiah 4 and in Jeremiah 5, he says again in Jeremiah 9. Go to Jeremiah 9, verse 26. Jeremiah 9, and just look at the end of the verse. Jeremiah 9, 26 ends, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. The people have a sin problem because they have a heart problem. And this sounds like a cliche, but it's true in the book of Jeremiah. The heart of their problem is a problem with their heart. And Jeremiah longs for an answer to this timeless question. Who or what can change our sin-sick hearts? He asks this exact question in Jeremiah 13, 23. He says, can the Ethiopian change his skin? or the leopard, his spots? In other words, can a person change his heart, the root cause of sin? And in our lives, we never merely have behavior problems. Our problem goes much, much deeper than that. We have a heart problem. And this point comes to a head and God will drive it home with a sledgehammer in Jeremiah 17. So come in your Bible to Jeremiah 17, and our text this evening is verses 1 through 10. Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 1, the inerrant word of God says, The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. 
with a diamond point. It is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. As they remember their children, so they remember their altars and their asherim by green trees on the high hills. O mountain of mine in the countryside, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for plunder, your high places for sin throughout your borders. And you will, even of yourself, let go of your inheritance that I gave you. And I will make you serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which will burn forever. Thus says Yahweh, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. And whose heart turns away from Yahweh. And he will be like a juniper in the desert. And will not see when prosperity comes. But will dwell in stony wastes in the wilderness. A land of salt which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh and whose trust is Yahweh. And he will be like a tree planted by the water that sends forth its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. And it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor refrain from yielding fruit. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the inmost being, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. From this text, we will consider three words that relate to your heart, so that you will trust the Lord and obey him from your heart. So the three words we'll see are first, devotion, second, dependence, and third, deception. Devotion, dependence, and deception. We begin with devotion. All of this ungodliness is plaguing the nation. There's no regard for God or his law and the lives of his people. The sin of Judah is a stench that is rising before the Lord. And verse 1 shows us just how deep the issue is. He says, the sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond tip, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart. So God describes the hearts of those in Judah like a stone tablet. And to engrave something as hard as stone, a person would take an iron stylus and give it a diamond tip, a substance so hard it can permanently mark or engrave the stone. Judah's sin is not merely on the surface. I I knew someone in high school who, when he grew up, he wanted to be a tattoo artist. And he wasn't old enough to legally get a tattoo, so he would take Sharpies and draw all over his skin. Have you ever seen tattoo sleeves that cover like from the top all the way down to the bottom? He did that to his arm with Sharpies, like different colors, different patterns, different designs. He actually had so much ink on his arm, he got ink poisoning because it would seep down into his skin. But even with that much ink, here was his thought. It will eventually rub off. It's not permanent. It left no permanent mark on his skin. And that's how a lot of people think of sin. It's like a marker that, yeah, it's on, yeah, maybe it's rough, but if I just work it enough, over time, it's going to come off. But sin is a fatal flaw in us far deeper than that. It's more like the ink poisoning seeping into our blood more than just the ink on the top of our skin. It is not just on the surface. So imagine you take the hardest material in the world, a diamond, and you permanently cut and carve into stone. It's now scarred. It's now engraved. It is cut so deep it cannot be removed. That's our sin. 
That's our hearts apart from divine grace. And because sin is etched into their rock-hard hearts, notice what the people engrave at the end of verse 1. Verse 1 tells us something else that's engraved. The horns of their altars. Now, altars had uh, four, four horns that would be on the corners. So picture kind of a rectangular shape, and each of the corners of the altar would have a wooden horn. And in pagan worship, it was common practice to carve the name of the idol or the deity, into the horns, into the corners of the altar. So the first part of verse 1 is their problem. Sin is engraved on the heart. The second part of verse 1 is the result of that heart problem. Idolatry. They are devoted to all the wrong things. And notice what behavior continues to flow out of their hearts in verse 2. Look at 17.2. As they remember their children, so they remember their altars and their ashram by green trees on the high hills. Ashram were wooden objects, usually poles, dedicated to the, the false Canaanite fertility goddess Asherah. So green trees are connected with fertility, High hills is where they often went to practice their idolatry. But notice who else is involved with the idol worship at the beginning of verse 2. Their children. In Judah, devotion to false gods had become a family affair. In other words, the heart problem wasn't something that developed later on in adulthood. It was ingrained. It was carved even to the hearts of their kids. Psalm 58 verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak falsehood wander in error from birth. And the parents, instead of raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, instead led their children straight into idolatry. And in verses 3 and 4, God declares again what will happen if their hearts remain unchanged and if they remain devoted to false gods. Ruin. Exile. Look at verse 3. O oh, mountain of mine in the countryside, I will give over your wealth and all your treasures for plunder, your high places for sin throughout your borders. Every mountain and every high hill in Judah that they used for idolatry belonged to God. He owned it, he gave it to them, and because he owned the land, he had the right to force them out for their disobedience. So in the middle of verse 3, he declares their wealth will be plundered. The land they use to commit gross immorality and idolatry, the high places, it will be lost. God says at the beginning of verse 4, because of their rebellion and you will, even of yourself, let go of your inheritance that I gave you. They will lose their heritage, their inheritance. And this inheritance that God had given them was the land. Jeremiah 2 verse 7 says this, I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land and my inheritance, the land, you made an abomination. So when they lose the inheritance, they will be forced out of the land. The rest of verse 4 says they will serve their enemies. They will be forced into foreign lands that they do not know. That is Babylon, and because of sin, God's anger is ignited like a raging flame. And his wrath will come through the armies of Babylon. And all this sin, which leads to their misplaced devotion and it ends in their destruction, begins where? In the heart. 
It is not an exaggeration to say this is the root of every sin in our lives. Proverbs 4, 23, guard your heart with all diligence, for from, for from it flow the springs of life. As believers, we must carefully guard and watch our hearts. You must pay attention to what your heart is devoted to, what it wants. Analyze it. Ask questions of it. Identify what your heart is drawn to, what it desires. Every time we sin, it comes from the heart. And that is not how we often think. This is not how I most naturally think. It is far more natural to view everything around us as responsible for our sin. So imagine you get upset with somebody in your life. It could be a spouse. It could be someone that you're on the phone with, with customer support. And something happens that makes you angry. And you sin, and you know it. You're not defending that you sinned. You know that you did. And later on, you're telling somebody about it, and they asked you, well, why did you get angry? What, what, what happened? What would you say? I got angry because this person did blank. Or I was calm until this person blank, whatever it is. In other words, I only responded that way because of what they did to me. Maybe they did sin against you. Maybe they did provoke you. Maybe they were in the wrong, but that is never ultimately the reason we sin. Your sin is not someone else's fault. Sin is not a result of your circumstances. When we sin, it's because of our hearts. There is something we want we aren't getting, some expectation we have that isn't being met. In the same way Judah was devoted to idols because of sin deep Within them, we too sin because of a problem, not with other people, but because of a problem in us. So here's a more godly way to respond. A person does something that tempts you to react in an ungodly way. And deep within you, that temptation to sin stirs. It flares up. Right at that moment, train yourself to examine your heart. Why does this bother me? Why am I tempted to respond in an ungodly way? What am I wrongly devoted to or wanting in my heart that is leading me to sin with my actions? Because if you can identify and repent of that, what's in the heart, then by the power of the Spirit, your ungodly desires and behavior over time will gradually start to change. You won't merely be treating symptoms, but getting to the root cause, and your actions will follow. Identify the sin problem in your heart. And before we move on, parents, we cannot miss that the corrupt heart in verse 1 is present in the children in verse 2. So when we correct and we train our children, we aren't merely aiming to modify behavior. Though, of course, we correct behavior, but we go deeper than that. We help our kids see the sin engraved on the heart. And obviously, how you do this depends on the situation and the age of your children, but this principle applies to toddlers and teenagers. Par biblical parenting, godly parenting, doesn't simply bark out, stop that. Don't do that. When we correct behavior, we take the time to show our kids their sin in the heart so we can ultimately point them to the true solution, the Savior. So as a small example, with our son, Michael, sometimes he and his sister will be 
playing and they'll be in a room by themselves and suddenly Riley, for example, starts crying. And so Kristen or I will walk into the room and you have Michael standing here, Riley's over here, and there's a toy there. And Riley's holding her arm crying. And so you walk in and you ask Michael, did you hit your sister? He gets big eyes. Yes, he knows, okay, they caught me. Why did you hit your sister? And what does he say? Because she wouldn't give me the toy. But why did he actually hit his sister? Because in his heart there is envy and covetousness and selfishness and anger. So we talk about yucky sin in his heart. We discuss that in terms he can understand how Jesus died for sin, explain sins bring consequences, and we give him one. Then we pray with him. Now, does that take more time? Is it much easier to just say in a stern tone, don't hit your sister, or to make excuses for it and just move on? Yeah, of course it is, but that misses the whole point. That misses the heart of the problem. We have to get to the root issue of the heart. And if you're thinking, if only there was a class in the church that I could go to to learn how to shepherd my child's heart, you're in luck. You're at the right church. Sunday mornings, 9 a.m., Mike and Will, equipping hour. Be there. But the issue God deals with in Judah is the same issue we have to deal with in our lives. The heart. So that's devotion. Second, we come to dependence. Dependence. In verses 5 through 8, we see that the heart impacts not only what we're devoted to, but also what we trust in. What we depend on. This section presents two different ways to live. One way is like a plant that will wither away and die. The other is like, uh, it's described as a blessed man, and this one is like a plant that's, treated, that's planted by streams of water, and it bears fruit, and it prospers, and which path you follow comes from your heart. Now, before we look at this in detail, just from that short summary, did that sound familiar? Did that sound like anything else in the Old Testament? It's Psalm 1. Yeah, it's basically Jeremiah giving us his version of Psalm 1. He, he does the same thing the psalm does. He describes the blessed man, and Psalm 1 calls it the wicked man. He refers to it as the cursed. At the beginning of verse 5, notice the language that Jeremiah uses. He, said, he refers to the one who is cursed. This language of being cursed is lifted straight from Deuteronomy. Remember, an important theme in Deuteronomy is blessing to Israel for keeping the terms of the covenant, covenant and curse it to them if they break it. So, for example, Deuteronomy 27.15 says, Cursed is the man who makes a graven image or a molten image. And what, according to Jeremiah 17.5, look there in your Bible, what does this cursed man depend on? He depends on himself. He depends on other human beings instead of depending on the Lord. All of his eggs are in one basket, and it's not the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. He trusts in his strength or his physical abilities. One resource that I read put it this way. This person's motto is not, in God we trust. Instead, it is in self we trust. So Judah, leading up to the exile, was tempted and often did trust in, to, in the, the military might of the nations to deliver her from her enemies. And God rebukes them for this exact reason other places in the prophets. For example, Isaiah 31 verse 1. Isaiah 31 1 says, Woe to those 
who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very mighty, but they do not regard at the Holy One of Israel nor seek Yahweh. Far better to have no strength and utterly depend on the Lord than to have the strength of 10,000 men and turn away from him. Judah's source of confidence and dependence is all out of whack. And where does their misplaced dependence come from? End of verse 5. And whose heart turns away from Yahweh. And so it is today. Our hearts often lead us to depend on anything but the Lord. We'll depend on our skills. We'll turn to our wealth. We'll turn to our knowledge or our accomplishments. Anything that is immediate or in front of us before we turn to the Lord is often our natural temptation. This comes naturally to, to us. We have to intentionally turn our hearts away from dependence on these things and toward dependence on the Lord. The, the one whose heart doesn't depend on the Lord, verse 6 says, is like a juniper in the desert. A, a juniper was a pretty large shrub, and it could grow anywhere from 6 to 23 feet high. And what's interesting about this shrub is compared to other plants, it actually did pretty well in times of drought for a while. But even if it's planted in the desert, if it has no water, or if it's in a wasteland, or if it's in a land of salt, given enough time, it will ultimately die. When we lived in Maryland, we had a townhouse, and we had a very small patch of grass. But this very small patch of grass was covered in weeds. It, it was 50% weeds, 50% grass, just all kind of growing together. And I thought, I'm going to make that look better. I'm going to do something about the weeds. So I go to the store, and I buy a weed killer, and it said on the bottle, kills weeds, not grass. I thought, perfect. So I get it. And I go home, and I spray it all over, and I'm excited because I'm going to kill my weeds, but I'm going to keep my grass. And then I go back a couple days later. It killed everything. There was nothing left. It was all brown, dead, hard. You know how grass gets, like, crusty when it dies? It was all like that. Our little patch of grass now looked like a little wasteland right in our backyard. That, that's kind of like the scene at the end of verse 6 just withering, no life, a barren wasteland, the one whose heart trusts in self or in others instead of the Lord is in a situation where they cannot sustain life. They may last a while, but ultimately they will spiritually wither away and die like a stony wasteland or land of salt that cannot support life. This kind of tree may seem like it's growing for a while, but it can't last. The life of a person whose heart does not depend on the Lord may seem good. It may seem like they're not in a wasteland. It may seem like they have nice things, or they experience temporary prosperity or pleasure, but the heart is still a barren wasteland. And what they depend on, what they hope in, is as fragile as glass, and it will eventually shatter. And such a person is the polar opposite of the one described in verses 7 and 8. This person in verses 7 and 8 is blessed because he trusts in the Lord, both in his heart and in his 
life. Such a person is like a tree that thrives. And how unlike verse 6 this is. This tree thrives instead of withering away. It's planted by water instead of being planted in the middle of a desert. So this person is so well nourished because his roots go deep. And it's connected to a stream, a source that gives life. But don't miss that this blessed person is not free from trials or tribulations. Look at the middle of verse 8. It says, and will not fear when the heat comes. A similar image is used at the end of verse 8. The end of verse 8 says, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought. So the heat and the drought represent anything that comes on the one who depends on the Lord that is difficult. That is what we would think of in New Testament language. It's various trials. It's weather that stresses the plant, and it's difficult. This kind of person, this tree, is not blessed because they're spared harsh conditions. Hard times still come. A financial hardship. A bleak diagnosis. An unexpected tragedy. But he or she is blessed because when the heat comes, they have all the resources they need not only to survive, but thrive. And because of that, they're so well nourished. Verse 8 says its leaves will be green. They will not refrain from yielding fruit. Such a person, regardless of circumstances, will be spiritually healthy, bright, vibrant. So the blessed and the cursed are both plants. Both experience severe weather. But one dies, one thrives. Why? Because one has roots that goes to the source of life, and the other doesn't. One has a heart that latches on to the Lord. The other is off trying to survive on its own in the middle of a desert. And sometimes when trials come upon our lives, it feels like stifling heat. It feels like oppressive heat that we often feel like we cannot get out from under, or like a dry drought where you just feel parched and longing for a single drop to find relief. But in the midst of that, the one whose heart trusts in the Lord can weather all of it. The hottest, most stifling heat, the driest seasons, because that man, that woman, has Yahweh. This person is rooted deep into the source of the one who gives life and nourishes and provides and gives us life abundantly. The one who refreshes us with the waters of his grace because he is the fountain of living water. We have him. And when the roots of our lives are attached to him and our hearts depend on him by faith, he not only saves us, but enables us by his spirit, wherever we are, to thrive, to bear spiritual fruit. So when we depend on him, we are blessed. And when we trust in ourselves and go our own way, we shrivel up, and like Judah, it leads us to ruin. Depending on ourselves instead of the Lord is a terrible idea. Why? That brings us to our final point, deception. Deception. Look at the beginning of verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else. Your sinful heart that guides and directs what you're devoted to and what you depend on cannot be trusted. 
It can deceive you. How deceitful is it? More deceitful than anything else. Apart from God's grace, this is our hearts. And you've probably heard this verse referenced 10,000 times in sermons, but just pause for a moment and ask yourself, do you really believe that what verse 9 says is true? I mean, my heart is imperfect. Sure. Deceitful, sometimes. But above everything? More deceptive? More crafty? More able to manipulate me than anything? Not only deceitful, but verse 9 continues and is desperately sick. Incurably sick. Terminally sick. There are, there are various ways, different translations and commentators I read brought this over into English. Here's just a few. Depraved. Incurable. Treacherous. Perverse. The human heart is a never-ending cesspool of human depravity. And that's not just the hearts of those in Judah or of the Hitlers or the Stalins of the world. That's everyone, everywhere, every era of history. Before the flood, Genesis 6-5 says, when Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the heart, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not only Genesis 6, but Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts throughout their lives. And Jesus himself said in Mark 7, 21 and 23, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So that's Genesis 6-5, Ecclesiastes 9-3, and Mark 7-21-23. How deceitful. The, the end of Jeremiah 17 verse 9 asks this hypothetical question. Who can know it? Have you ever known someone who just lies all the time? Like even about things that don't matter? You just know, if this person is talking, I can't really trust what they're saying because they just constantly deceive. You can't trust that person. It's hard to go far in a relationship with that person because you know they're constantly trying to deceive me. That's our hearts. Always able to deceive. That's my heart. No psychologist, no theologian, no behavioral specialist can fully plunge the depths of the sin nature etched into the human heart. These passages teach a doctrine sometimes referred to as total depravity. Total depravity. That simply means our nature is totally corrupted by sin. Our minds are corrupted by sin. Our hearts are corrupted by sin. Our will is corrupted by sin. It is all tainted and bent toward sin, not God. In other words, human beings are not inherently good. That's why Proverbs 28, or Proverbs 28, 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will escape. And with that in mind, how insane is one of the most popular mantras of the modern world. This is arguably the single most pervasive lie our current culture believes. It is the rudder that guides the ship of modern thinking. 
Three simple words. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. If you were to make a list of Satan's greatest catchphrases, that would be one. Woody Allen, the actor and director, was asked in an interview about an immoral relationship he was in. He began dating and later married his girlfriend's stepdaughter. And even unbelievers were looking at this thinking like, how did this happen? How do you do this? And so he was asked, what do you think about this relationship? Why did you do it? And here was Woody Allen's answer. Quote, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to those things. You meet someone and you fall in love, and that's that. End quote. In other words, follow your heart. This comes through in other ways today. Be you. Live your truth. Do what you want to do. To follow your heart is to throw the door of your life open to unbridled, unrestrained selfishness. Whatever you want, take. Whatever lust you have, quench. Whatever comes most naturally, do. Deny yourself nothing. Never mind what God says. In sin, your heart naturally deceives you. This is why, contra popular opinion, man cannot reason his way to God. Man cannot work his way to God. No amount of good deeds can overcome the sin etched with a diamond tip into the stone of the human heart. So the end of verse 9 asks, who can know it? And then verse 10 answers that question. Who can know it? Verse 10. I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the inmost being, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The Lord alone knows the heart because he alone is able to truly search the heart. He examines, he investigates. Psalm 139.23 says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And this truth that God searches and tests our hearts should both convict and comfort. In our part of the body of Christ, we understand why this should convict. It convicts because if God searches the hearts, it means that he sees our sin in detail. Our actions, things that are hidden from everybody else, are known to the Lord. There's no such thing as a secret sin before the God who searches the heart. But to believers... Verse 10 is also profoundly comforting. He searches and tests the heart, and he judges perfectly. Your faith may at times seem weak, like barely more than a flickering flame. You may long for more godliness, for more growth, for more faith, for more understanding, for more assurance. But if you are in Christ, the God who searches your heart and judges perfectly knows you are his. Isn't that what Peter says to our Lord? Remember John 21, 17. Jesus asks, asks him, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. In other words, you know my heart. You search my heart. And Peter says, you know that I love you. If you're a believer, he knows you. He knows your trials. He knows what you need. He knows you are bought with a price. God knows and God judges perfectly. He judges rightly when in our hearts, we can't. So application, 
Don't listen to your heart. Listen to God. When your heart speaks or desires something against his word, tell your heart what God says and trust in the Lord, not your heart, which can so easily deceive you. And this whole passage is longing for something. This text is crying out with the question, who can save us from our darkened hearts? Not only who can know it, but on a deeper level, who can heal it? Who can replace the heart of stone with a heart that lives? How can I undo this sin and rebellion? How can I get rid of the sin that is etched into the stone of my innermost being? And the answer is, we can't. For us to be saved, our hearts have to be changed. We need God to do something. And the Lord Jesus Christ lives a perfect life. He is unstained by sin. His heart and his life is perfect. And he bears the wrath we deserve and he lays his life down willingly on the cross and the anger of God kindled like a fire against sin falls upon him. And God's stamp of approval is on the work of Christ when he rises from the dead in victory. And as he draws people to himself by his spirit, he grants us new hearts. He causes us to be born again. He gives us spiritual heart transplants. So we take hold of him by faith as we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3, 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 7, 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, from the heart, will flow rivers of living water. In Christ, we are given new hearts and made new creations. If you're a believer... Your heart is not what it used to be. Your old heart never would have been devoted to God. But your new one is. Your old heart never would thirst for righteousness or depend on the Lord. But your new one does. Because the Lord healed you and saved you and freed you to live for his glory and took the heart that was engraved in sin and he gave you a new one. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded from this text that were you to not come to us, we never would have come to you. We are dead in our sin. We confess that your word is true, that there is none good, no, not one. We, we are deceived. We are naturally led astray. But Lord, as we, as we think about our hearts that are darkened by sin, would we rejoice even more at the unfathomable miracle you've done in us and saving us and taking our stone sin engraved hearts and giving us hearts that live and causing us to be born again and helping us to have eyes to see and beholding the glory of the lord jesus christ so would we be amazed at your grace and as we fight sin and as we fight our flesh even now would we be students of our hearts would we see our desires and would we turn from you, not just with our actions, turn to you, not just with our actions, but in our hearts and our desires and what we think and what we want to do. Would you be glorified? And it's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.